Hi, and welcome to Failureology, a podcast about engineering failures. I'm your host, Nicole. And I'm Brian, and we're both from Calgary, Alberta, Canada. Welcome to our ninth mini failure episode. We're bringing you engineering failures in bite-sized pieces. Make no mistake though, these are still significant failures, but they either are pretty straightforward causes or not enough information available for a full episode of Failureology. Essentially, we have a list of failures we want to tell you about, but haven't been able to dig up enough information to talk about them for 45 minutes. So these episodes, just the failure, no news, no fake ad, for now, at least, it might change in the future. Probably some train tangents, though. You know we love those. It gets off track a few times. We get derailed. Anyways, these episodes are like failureology light. That's what we're calling them. And this week's mini failure is about the Cleveland East Ohio gas explosion, which I had not heard of until we did this mini failure. It's from a long time ago. A few years before I was born. (laughs) The Cleveland East Ohio gas explosion occurred on October 20th, 1944, resulting in a gas leak explosion and subsequent fires that killed 131 people, destroyed a 2.6 square kilometer area on the east side of Cleveland. The area is now an industrial commercial area with Lake Erie to the north and a residential area to the south. The East Ohio Gas Company built a full-scale natural gas plant in 1940, the first plant of its kind in the world. It had four spheres for storing the gas, that were 19 meters in diameter, and these would contain the the liquefied natural gas at minus 162 degrees Celsius, with the fourth sphere being added in 1942. The plant had the equivalent of 2.8 million cubic meters of gas and operated for three years. So if you've been to Detroit, which is about two and a half, three hours from Cleveland, just off the I-75 interstate on the way back from from Cleveland. So if you're driving, if you're driving from Cleveland back towards Detroit, they also have one of these gas plants and they painted one of the uh, sphere tanks to look like a basketball. That is super cool. So cool. So they painted it after the Detroit Pistons won the 2004 NBA Finals. They played against uh, the LA Lakers, who at the time had Shaq and Kobe. Rest in peace. And the the giant basketball, it's always such a highlight of the drive. I, you know, growing up uh, outside of Windsor, I've been to Detroit several times. Um, I've also been to Ohio several times. There's a amusement park uh, just close to, actually pretty close to Cleveland, is that where the original Six Flags was in Ohio? Uh, yeah, I think so, but not uh, this one. The one that I like to go to is called Cedar Point. I don't think that's ever been a Six Flags. Oh, yeah. Cedar Point. Cedar Point is also very good. Yes. it's. I think it's better than Canada's Wonderland. Personally, maybe I'm biased. I love Cedar Point. I've been there so many times. So I've driven this highway a lot of times. And I mean, it's only a three-hour drive. I've also been to see the Cleveland Browns a few times. Um, there's the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame is in Cleveland. Uh, there's an Alice Cooper restaurant. Uh, you're right on the lake. Cleveland's a pretty cool city. Um, so I've been there lots. You have almost convinced me to go to Cleveland, but it's going to take a little bit more convincing. Well, to go to Cleveland from here is, that's, that's tough. But I mean, if from here, it's like driving to Edmonton. Well, it's not that bad. I'm not, I'm, I'm not going to plan a trip to Cleveland. All those things sound really cool, but I'm not going to burn a couple days of vacation to go to Cleveland. Sorry if you live in Cleveland. Well, if you got 
a layover maybe you could plan it to be in Cleveland you should go to see the Browns play go see the Browns play sit in the dog pound it'll be one of the best football games you've ever been to the Browns fans are really intense and they all sit in the dog pound and they yell really loud and they're they have all these chants it's so fun yeah the Browns have had a really tough go in the NFL for, I, I want to say, like the last 20 years, maybe longer. They, they've gone through a plethora of quarterbacks. I was hoping that this year with Baker Mayfield, it might be their year. I was really pulling for them. They had some flashes of brilliance, and then, then they just didn't. Yeah, I like the Browns, but for the nostalgia, I would say, I wouldn't say they're like the best football team in the NFL. But I'm telling you, the experience of going to a Browns game in person and sitting the dog pound will be one of the more enjoyable football watching experiences you could have. I think the fans that sit in the dog pound are definitely very into the Browns. I feel it's the same way as Raider Nation, that the people that are really into the now the Las Vegas Raiders, then the Oakland right. Raiders, when those teams were really bad. Those fans would still show up and they were still loud and they were yeah. dressed up and they were painted and they were they were really into their football teams, which is saying a lot. And then there's people that are really into the Browns. Like that is next level dedication to the team that's in your city. Yes, yes. But back to the gas explosion. So around 2.30 p.m., a white vapor started leaking out from a seam in the side of the fourth tank. So the fourth tank was added last. The gas plant originally started with three tanks. They added the fourth tank a couple years later. So it was the last one to go in. And yeah, around 2.30, a white vapor started leaking out of a seam in the tank. Wind from the lake, which is Lake Erie, pushed the vapor into a mixed-use area, an area of commercial, retail, and residential and eventually that gas made it into the sewer lines through catch basins in the street gutters. 10 minutes later, 2.40 p.m., that vapor was ignited. It launched manhole covers sky high with jets of fire from the sewer, which is honestly really, it sounds really, really intense and not something that I knew about. So I had kind of known a little bit about the fire Obviously, because I did a little bit of reading before we added it to our list. Uh, you know, we like to vet those those recommendations. So I had I had kind of known a little bit. I knew there was a fire, but I had no idea that it had gone into the into the underground sewer. And that's why likely why it spread so fast and went unnoticed. So the fire had spread by that point through twenty blocks. Um, you know, there's no one there's no one in the sewer, and so there's no one to smell the gas and recognize that it's spreading and and find a way to deal with it. And so it the the gas leak likely went unnoticed for, you know, well at least that ten minutes from when it started leaking to when the to when the vapor ignited. I, I would assume not a lot of people in the area kind of knew what was going on, or or maybe they could smell gas, but it always smelled like gas because they were downwind of the gas plant. I don't really know. I mean, it's 1944. I doubt they had sensors in place to you know, to, to detect this type of leak. Yeah. And, and if it's going through the sewer system, it's, it's unimpeded by anything. Once it's in the sewer system, there's not a lot of wind that's going to move it around. Um, so it's going to continue to fill that, that sewer volume before some not great things happen. Just as a side note, Nicole mentioned that, um, you know, there, there was this large explosion in the, you know, in the sewer system and, you know, manhole covers were being launched skyward. Uh, the fastest 
thing that has been launched is actually a manhole cover um, from when the the U.S. was doing some nuclear testing. And uh, this manhole got launched. I don't know if it made it all the way to space, but it got launched at, uh, I believe it was six times the escape velocity of, of what you need to escape the gravitational pull um, of the Earth. Somewhere around 125,000 um, miles per hour, I believe is how fast um, this thing got launched. So it was it was part of a, a nuclear test. They're doing some testing on this Operation Plum Bob. Um, so they used 300 tons of, uh, just 300 ton yield is what they were they were using there was a two ton concrete cap that they placed just above the bomb. Um, and on top of this, uh, this hole was a, was a manhole cover. And of course, once they, they ignited this bomb for testing in the shaft, there was this four inch thick, 500 pound steel manhole and it got launched into the air. And, you know, this being, you know, in the early fifties, they don't have the, the greatest high speed camera technology, but they certainly had high speed cameras that were, that were good for the time. So this camera would capture one frame per millisecond and the manhole cover only shows up in one frame. So it is traveling at a substantial rate of speed. It's possible they got the idea from the Cleveland gas explosion because it, it the gas explosion happened in 1944 and I believe this Operation Plum Bob happened in 1957. So maybe maybe Cleveland's where they got the idea. You never know. You never know. This thing, the estimate for the speed is 56 kilometers a second. Um, which I don't is, ever want to go that fast. Which is not slow. Um, no, how, that's a lot of Gs. That is. That, that is not survival for, for any human being. Um, they've never found this manhole cover, so who knows what happened to it. Maybe it's in space. I hope there wasn't a bird or something sitting on it or a small bug, but... Uh, it uh, it left Earth at a very quick speed. But back to the Cleveland gas explosion. Thinking the disaster was contained, spectators and people that lived in Cleveland started to return back to their homes only to have a second tank explode at 3 p.m., 30 minutes after the first tank exploded. And this one, it took out the rest of the tank farm. Completely leveled it. Nothing left. Nothing left. This second explosion was calculated to be equal to a 2.43 kiloton TNT explosion or one-sixth the explosive power of the Hiroshima atomic bomb, which, as we know, was very devastating. The death toll reached 131 people. The fire destroyed 79 homes, two factories, 217 cars, seven trailers, and one tractor. In addition to pavement, damaging underground utility installations, and knocking out power to several homes. So remember, this explosion, the gas had leaked into the sewer underneath the street. And so when that exploded, it took out all the utilities that were underground. Uh, it knocked out a lot of power. That's, I mean, you would have knocked out your sewer system, your power system. Uh, potentially water would have been impacted. In addition to all the pavement, the manholes, your drain, your stormwater drainage system, you would have impacted all of that for the, you know, the 20 block span that this encompassed. Yeah. And, and for people that haven't done any, you know, sort of construction projects or, you know, building projects like Nicole works on a lot um, in the city, there is a ton of infrastructure underneath the roads, underneath the sidewalks. There's a ton of, um, you know, obviously sewer lines and storm drains and water lines and cable runs for 
fiber optic and electrical conduit. There's a substantial amount of things just underneath the surface of the road. It, it's quite impressive if, if you're ever able to see, um, you know, kind of a cross section of the road opened up while they're doing some sort of project work, or even if you can find some schematics or, or other drawings for, for, for projects, just to see the extent of things that are underneath the surface of the road. Yeah. So in Calgary, that's why the flood, the 2013 flood was so catastrophic. I mean, the flood was, was obviously horrible in itself, but nearly all of the buildings downtown have an incoming electrical vault. And in almost all of them, that vault is below ground. And so you walk across a graded opening that, you know, if you're if you work for the you know electricity company, you would open a hatch in that grate, you would go down a ladder to the level below ground, and then you would walk into the vault that way. And so when the street flooded, it knocked out a lot of those vaults. You know, they're not, I mean, they're not flood proof. You're not expecting the the street to flood like that. And so so it took a long time to get power back on. I think that was one of the one of the big challenges. Once everyone was okay, everyone had evacuated, the water started to recede. Getting power back on to the to the downtown core was was probably one of the bigger challenges. I think NMAX was like it was months of them just going building to building, getting power back on, which was. Yeah, I was going to say it was a week for for I think all the buildings to have some sort of functional um, level of power. And then obviously in the, in the months that follow, there's tons of stuff that has to be replaced or it's been damaged by water. Or it's not operating up to capacity. Yeah, it was it was a giant flooding event that happened in uh, I believe it was June of, of 2013 here in Calgary, and it, it took out a lot of our our downtown infrastructure, at least electrical infrastructure, and you know there were substantial millions of dollars that were invested in flood mitigation measures. So hopefully things like that don't happen again. Agreed. But back to Cleveland. So this is 1944. This is before the internet. Definitely before the internet. Definitely before online banking. So in addition to the loss of life and property, tragic as that was, a lot of people kept their stocks, bonds, and cash in their house. So when those houses burned down, so did all of those savings. And the estimates for the property loss ranges somewhere between 7 to 15 million US dollars, which is was in 1944. So today that's equivalent to about 110 to $236 million. Um, that's the transfer of what that amount of money is worth today. I would imagine if something like this happened today, it would be worth substantially more than that. I would say you're probably close to a billion dollars just based on other disasters we've seen and what those those repairs and, and cleanups have cost. I, I was going to say even more than a billion dollars. If, if you're flattening a 20 block radius of of downtown Calgary, which is essentially our entire downtown. Um, actually, that's larger than our entire downtown. There's easily a billion dollars worth of buildings. This wasn't downtown, so there's no towers. It's all like two-story homes, individual homes. But you still took out 20 blocks. So, you know, if we assume, I don't know, like 10 houses a block, you took out 200 houses. So, yeah. I think there's more yeah. than 10 houses a block. I would say it, it, it's easily approaching a billion dollars, over a billion dollars, easily over a billion dollars. Yeah, it's expensive um, either way. Not cheap, not <laughs> no. cheap. The residents, though, if their homes weren't destroyed, they were able to return the next day as electricity was slowly restored. After this disaster, utility companies and cities began to rethink their natural gas storage and below-grade tanks became a lot more popular than above-grade tanks. 
Yeah, I would say I see a lot more below grade tanks. Uh, do see above grade tanks, usually inside a building. If there's a backup diesel generator, they'll have what's called, uh, well, if the tank has a generator on it, it's called a belly tank and it kind of sits in a tank underneath the engine of the generator. And if the building doesn't have enough room for that, it usually it's too short. Sometimes they'll have what they call a day tank and it's a separate tank that sits kind of beside the generator. Um, those are not super common. I would say we see the belly tank a lot, but we don't see day tanks very much. Those are pretty rare. And there's a lot of rules that go into that. You have to get special permitting. You have to have the fire department come out. There's a whole separate code that you have to follow. Um, from a design perspective, it's kind of a pain in the butt. Uh, definitely doable. It seems but... like good from a safety perspective, though. Oh, yes, definitely good from a safety perspective. But if we could avoid it and just do belly tanks, that'd be great. Because those come kind of pre-tested as part of the generator package and electrical buys the generator, so it's their problem. Leaves it out That's of our... That's fair. Out of our... Um... Put, put it into somebody else's scope. Yeah, good old Sparkies can take care of that. Yep. So there you have it. The Cleveland East Gas Explosion of 1944. Thanks for listening to this mini failure episode. For our regular episodes, check out Failurology wherever you get your podcasts. If you want to chat with us, our Twitter handle is at Failurology. You can email us at thefailurologypodcast at gmail.com. You can connect with us on LinkedIn, or you can send us a message through Patreon. There are links to all of these in the show notes. Bye, everyone. Talk soon. <laughs>